And we're good. All right, everybody ready? Book of Jude. Book of Jude. Now, last week, we had to do a lot of kind of going back and review. Um, I'm going to go back and review quickly, but we'll see if everyone remembers the big issue that we talked about last week that I kept going back to over and over and over because I think it's so critical. We talked about the significance or the importance of finding hermeneutical keys and knowing what the key is, and I think that there's a significant issue here at the beginning of Jude that uh, for some reason is overlooked or I believe the commentaries in many cases actually goes against what the text is actually teaching. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's just remind ourselves quickly of the outline that we have established for Jude up to this point. It's kind of an outline and, pros- and, pr- and progress. We started off with what in Jude? We start with the greeting, right? And the greeting identifies the author, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, right? It identifies the recipients to them, and then it, the recipients are, are identified and what, this is so important, okay, there is identified in the following ways, sanctified, preserved, and called, all right? Then a blessing is mentioned, and that blessing it has threefold as well, mercy, mercy peace, and love, and some, te- well, we won't, there's some other things we could do there, but I'm not going to get into that, okay? That, so there's the basic greeting, all right? Gives you all some key information. Again, what I want to stress to you is, once again, that the recipients of the letter, the one that he is writing to, are described as sanctified, preserved, and called. I cannot stress that enough, all right? Then, after the greeting, what do we have next in our outline? The purpose and we could go, and that pur- the purpose goes from which verse, t- starts from which verse, and ends at which verse? Three and four, right? And remember, beloved, when I gave all the diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Let me make it very clear. What is the purpose of the book? Okay, I'm, I'm hearing one, and I'm hearing some other kind of mumblings. Okay, it is to motivate them, challenge them, plead with them, urge them, whatever other words you want to use to describe it, to do what? To contend for the faith. This is so important, all right? The purpose of the book is not to warn them of possible danger, it's actually to, 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 to motivate them to contend with the danger. It's not so much like, hey guys, be, be on the lookout. Hey guys, watch yourself. Hey guys, be careful. Hey guys, you're in danger. No, no, no. It's like, hey guys, go contend. And why does he not seem worried about warning them that they are in danger? So, because they are described as, someone just said it, sanctified preserved, and called. Remember we talked about this like now for two weeks. I've really tried to stress this point, okay? Because I think the entire interpretation at the beginning hinges on this fact, all right? 
So he's trying to motivate them to contend. Who's supposed to do the contending? They are. And who's the they? The members of the, and it's the church. They are to do the contending. Not some specify, some, you know, special forces unit. Not some special apologist. No, the average person is supposed to be doing the contending. So he's trying to exhort them and motivate them to contend. Why do they need to contend? Because the men have come into the church. They've come into the church. And how did they get in? I don't, well, they kept crept in and they were not detected. So in other words, they came in in a way that they just looked like everyone else, right? They make it in. Now, they're inside. So now, we, you th- think of it, we talked about invasion versus an insurgency. This is the insurgency. They're inside the church. And what two things are they doing inside the church? They're, turning, they're, they're attacking the concept of God's grace, or they're corrupting the concept of God's ra- uh, grace. They're polluting it, all right? They're turning it into lasciviousness. And what's the second thing they're doing? Denying the Lord. Now, we think that the denying the Lord there can't be an outright, we don't believe in Jesus. It probably means they're denying the Lord in what way? No, that wouldn't be unawares. I think that would be pretty obvious, right? It has to be something with the doctrine that they're teaching about God's grace, right? There has to be, the, the denial can't just be, Everyone, I mean, it can't just be like, hey, guys, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the deity. I don't believe in God. You would think everyone, that wouldn't be unawares, right? He's seemingly to imply that they're, that, hey, they're in there, and they may be hard. You've got to go find them. Okay, does that make sense? that's, That's the way I'm reading it, at least. Okay, now, so we have all of that. That's the greeting. That's the purpose. And then what do we have starting in verse 5? The reminders. Now, this is where I feel that our work, that we're driving down the road, I thought, I thought we, had, we hit a couple of bumps. Hey, there was a little, a couple of, maybe a couple of times we had to hear the rumble strip to get us back on the road. But this is where I feel the car just left the road and we burst into flames and that I don't know what, I, I don't know what happened because there was a massive disconnect, I feel, between me and everyone else. Okay, so let me, rem- let me remind you of how to interpret the reminders. How do some people interpret the reminders? Hey guys, I'm going to remind you of these situations where people were judged because if you follow the false teachers, you're going to be judged. That's how it's typically preached. Right? If you follow the false teachers, you're going to be judged. I've got commentaries. I even read from some of the commentaries that take that direct approach. That's how it's preached. Why do you think it's preached so commonly that way? Because it preaches good, right? Okay, I make it practical to you. Hey, guys, you better listen to these reminders because you too could face the same fate as the people that Jude was writing to if you follow the false teachers of 2022. That, that, oh, that sounds, that, that works, right? Okay, but remember, there's a difference between studying the Bible and writing a sermon. 
I remember, I, I'm very much now a skeptic, okay? I'm very much a, a sermon denier, okay? Because I think now that some preach sermons and that gives the illusion that you're studying the Bible when all you're really doing is you're just pretending. Writing a sermon, in some cases, is nothing more than writing a speech that is supposed to be somewhat entertaining or moving or convicting versus being accurately presenting the text as it is. All right, so we have in these reminders, what are the first three reminders? We have Israel, right? They come out of Egypt. But then what happens? Some of them are destroyed, correct? Right? Second illustration, angels. Third illustration, Sodom and Gomorrah. So we, if these are reminders, what's the purpose of the reminder? I know that we have now, like I, I've got, I know people online are like, oh, for crying out loud, we've covered this so many times. But I've got to make sure everyone in this building has it, okay? I got to, people outside this building have it down. I got to make sure you guys have it down, okay? What is the purpose of the reminders? To motivate them to contend for the faith. Right, because they're trying to motivate them to do so. And the reminders is to show you what happens to the false teachers, in other words, seeing that the false teachers are going to receive this kind of judgment should be the motivator for you to contend. So what is the ultimate, ba- what is the ultimate motivation for you to contend? What is the ultimate motivation being utilized here? It's, a, it's appealing to what? Hopefully your humanity, hopefully your, your desire not to see another human being be eternally judged. It's trying to motivate you on that basis. Hey, look what's going to happen to these people. You don't, and because whatever is going to happen to them is what? Future. So I'm going to show you what's going to, hap- to happen to them in the future by showing you what has happened to people in the past by taking stories that Jude felt like they already knew, they just needed to be reminded of. Right? Does that make sense? Now, I, I, I just don't, again, it makes no sense to me to be saying, hey guys, you're in danger of judgment, when he's already called them sanctified, preserved, and called. So what, and think, think about it, those three blessings fit perfectly here. What are the three blessings again? Mercy, peace, and love. Well, if you have mercy, do you want to see people judged? If you have love, do you want to see people judged? No. So it's appealing to these, this characteristic. I don't know why the commentaries do this, but it, it, it bothers me greatly that, that it's just, they almost make it say something that I don't think it actually says. All right. So we looked at the first reminder. We don't need a, we didn't do much work on the first reminder because it's pretty simple and straightforward, right? We've got, uh, I'll read it, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. Clearly, he's not, he's not questioning their belief because he's already referred to them as being what? Sanctified, preserved, and called. So clearly he's not questioning their faith. Whose faith is he calling into question? 
the false teachers. All right, it makes perfect sense, right? And that they're going to be destroyed. Then we have the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now, and there, once again, you have the angels who left their first estate, whatever happens, and they end up in chains to be judged. Once again, liking the angels to whom? The false teachers who have departed from what? The angels departed from what? The first estate. The teachers have departed from what? The faith once delivered unto the saints. See the correlation? Now, I know we're still working on the identity of the angels. I know there's still a lot to go into that. We'll get, we may come back around to it, but I don't want us, I, I still want to work on it, but I want us to, I want us to advance at least a little bit in the book itself because I want us to, to try to not lose sight of what the book is saying. I feel like there's just a little bit of detour and everyone forgot what the book is about. Like we took a little bit of detour and go, who are these angels? And then I'm like, so what's the key, the hermeneutical key? And almost everybody was like, I don't remember anymore. So I don't want to get too far off track. So we'll circle back to these angels, all right? Let's just go to the next reminder. What is the next reminder? Oh, one of my least favorite stories in the entire Bible. I hate this story with every ounce of my being. This story is disgusting and messed up and, oh, I hate this story. I really do. I really, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I do, okay? So, we're going to take a little detour and we're going to look at it, okay? Now, first and foremost, let's just focus on the words used in Jude first. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them and like manner, giving themselves over to fornication. Let's stop right here. They have given themselves over to, right? They've given themselves over to. We're going to take this all apart and see what we can find, all right? So we have the cities of Sodom, Sodom Gomorrah and the other cities. They're named, I believe, in uh, Genesis. They're named in Genesis. I don't have them in front of me right now. Um, I think one starts with an I, the other one maybe an A, I can't remember. But uh, I've seen them. I just, obviously, I've read them. I just don't have them on the top of my head. But we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Let's just try to find out exactly what Jude is, is trying to do with the story. And he wants them to see that they have given themselves over completely to fornication. Now, let's look up a couple of things. If you have the Blue Letter Bible... Uh, app. Let's just look up a couple of words. Let's just do a, a kind of a, a mini word study on all of this. All right. Go to Jude. Go to our interlinear. And what do we want to look up first? Let's look up giving themselves over to fornication. That whole phrase, giving themselves over to fornication, is taken from one Greek word. All right. That Greek word is this Greek word. You probably know at least, you probably at least have some connection or understanding of it. Strong's G, 1608. Ekpornu. Ekpornu. Ekpornu is the, the way it's said. I can't roll the R the way he does. Ekpornu. Um, you hear the word porn there, right? Okay. Ekpornu. And it means to go a whoring, give oneself over to fornication. All right? To be utterly 
unchaste. To give self over to fornication. As the Thayer's Greek lexicon states, seems to indicate a lust that gluts itself, satisfies itself completely. What's interesting is the phrase is not found in any secular writings. It's not found in any secular writings. So th- and it's only used right here in Jude. All right? So what's the concept? They gave themselves over. Think of it this way, because I know when we hear fornication, what do we immediately go with? Sex before marriage is typically where we, we, we classify fornication. And I'm not saying it doesn't include that, but the idea here is just unbridled lust. They give themselves over to it and, and it, like no, no control at all. And they, they glut, it's almost like a glutton. They just, they satisfy themselves completely with it. They give themselves, com- abandon themselves completely to it. No restraint, not even any struggle against it. It's not like, man, I shouldn't be doing this. Man, I feel bad. It's like, no, this is what I want. This is what I have to have. And that's what they go after. So these cities have given themselves completely over to it. All right? Everybody have a pretty good idea there, right? Now, let's go back to uh, Jude, right? Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and then going after strange flesh, going after strange flesh. So unbridled, just glutton for, for lust and, 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 and fulfillment. They go after that. And then this idea of strange flesh. That's a, uh, an interesting term, right? Flesh is uh, the, the Greek word sarks, right? And it just means flesh, the soft substance of the living body, which covers the bones, all right? That, that's pretty basic. Uh, the body, the body of a man, use of natural or physical origin, the sensuous nature of man, the animal nature. So the idea that they go after flesh, that makes sense, right? They're going after flesh to satisfy their lust. But the next word is strange, right? Or the first word is strange, okay? I focused on flesh first. Uh, in, the, in the interlinear, I think, fle- uh, I think flesh comes first in the interlinear, if I remember correctly. Yeah, going after flesh Strange is how it's in the interlinear. So what's the strange part? The strange is this Greek word. If I can get it to play. Strong's G, 2087. Heteros. 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 Heteros is, is used 99 times. Another 43 times, other 42 times, other thing three times, some two times, next day two times. That's not really helpful, all right? Um, the, uh, if you look at Strong's definition, do you see any major clue there? Other or different, altered, else, next day, one, other, some, strange. Is, is that helpful? Okay, that's not helpful. Outline of biblical usage, the other, another, to number. The number as opposed to some former person or thing. The other of two, to quality. 
Another, one of the, of the, one not of the same nature, form, class, kind, different. Is that helpful in any way, shape, or form? It's not, it's not super helpful, right? But let's do this. Let's do this. I'm going to go, if I can find it, I'm going to pull up uh, all kinds of different commentaries and see if they offer. Well, let's, let's look at this verse from a number of different translations, right? We, we get the idea of giving themselves up to, right? To fornication. It's like complete just, I've got a lust and I'm going to completely satisfy that lust. I mean, completely unbridled, just no control. So the strange flesh, let's, let's see how this is translated in a number of translations. The New International Version. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So the strange flesh here is defined as perversion. Everybody see that? All right. Well, we, we, we have to start here and then we work ourselves back, okay? Because what we have a tendency to do is we will, okay, I'm just a hermeneutical principle here. This is important. When we see, when we see Sodom and Gomorrah, the first thing we do is what? What's, I mean, come on, let's just be honest. We hear Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the immediately thing we think of? Yeah, but I mean, just, just say, what's the sin? Homosexuality, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Immediately, that's what we think of, yes? Okay. So, the problem is that immediately places what in our hermeneutic? A presupposition. Right? So, okay, clearly this is homosexuality. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm not saying that it is. What I'm saying is that our job is to set aside the presupposition and figure out what Jude is doing. Because Jude, remember, Jude is simply grabbing parts of these stories, yes? Does he go into every detail about Israel and Egypt? And uh, No. He just, some of them are destroyed. Does he really even offer much detail about the angels in chains? No. All right. So that means we've got to be very careful when we come to this that we don't fill in gaps that Jude is not intending. He just wants us to get a basic concept here and go with it. Oh, we're going to go back to the story. But for now, I just want to figure out what Jude is trying to get across. And he's trying to get across that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah completely gave themselves over, right? Completely to, it's like a, a lust that they just were gluttons for and they satisfied themselves above and beyond what you could even want. That's the point he's trying to get across. Everybody see that? And that they gave themselves over to, to flesh, right? Okay, we understand that, that they were going to satisfy themselves with flesh, but with strange flesh, we got to figure out exactly what that refers to. We think we know, but we, we can't ever take what we think we know and make that what we know. Everybody hear what I just said? You can't take what you think you know and make it what you know. Because what you think you know may not be something you should know. What you think you know isn't truth. Does everybody understand that? What you think you know isn't truth. Truth has to be discovered and verified. You say, well, we've studied Jude before. I don't care. Remember, what do I think about our past studies of anything? Throw them away. 
So we have to start here before we go to the original story. Does that make sense? That's just, just, uh, we got to be very passionate about that, that approach. Okay, so let's look at all the translations. So what does the NIV do with the word strange flesh? Perversion. Perversion, okay? New, New Living Translation. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. All right, so the strange flesh has something to do with sexual perversion. Uh, the uh, ESV, just as, Sodom, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, now listen to this, a natural desire. All right, I think, I think we all know which direction this is going. Everybody getting an idea probably? All right, the Berean Study Bible, uh, sexual immorality pursued strange flesh. They just go with strange flesh. King James, we know, goes with strange flesh. New King James uses the word strange flesh. The New American, strange flesh. The New American Standard, 1995, strange flesh. The New American Standard, 1977, strange flesh. The Amplified Bible, um, they go with, they indulged in gross immoral freedom, that's interesting. Immoral freedom. They were free from any restraint. There, there was nothing holding them back. Now, this is interesting. Because what's the description of the people who've come into the church? Ungodly. They have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. Someone look up the Greek word for lasciviousness real quick. Look up the word lasciviousness really quick. You don't have to tell me the Greek word, just the meaning of the Greek word. Say that first part again. Unbridled lust. What, what did he just say about the people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Basically, unbridled lust. You see the correlation? He, these reminders are pointing us to whom? The f- false teachers. Okay, the reminders are pointing them to whom? The false teachers, not the people in the church. I don't know how many different ways I can say that. I'm going to continue to do it because oh, I don't know how many commentaries. I got a commentary right there on, on the previous verse that says, hey, he's warning the people in the church not to follow the false teachers or they're going to be judged. And I read a commentary like that. Why did I spend $19 on that garbage? Okay, that's not not what the text is doing. The the people in the church are just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah because they are turning God's grace into a license of unbridled lust so that you can satisfy all your lust and yet do so thinking that you're okay with God and that you're religiously right. Like almost a religious justification for it. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah didn't even need a religious justification. They didn't need anything. They didn't feel any conviction. Does everybody understand? All right? So the strange flesh, I think we're getting an idea, has something to do with sexual immorality and some kind of sexual perversion. That seems to be where they're going with this. Agreed? All right? Now, and this would make, not just think, This would also fit perfectly if we understand the angels to be those who went after 
the daughters of men. And then you would have, you would have the same kind of lust occurring and unbridled lust. It, it would be, it, there, there would be a, maybe an argument in connecting, and I'm not saying that it's perfect. Now, if we go to commentaries on strange flesh, there's a bunch of, of ideas here. Um, this one, given themselves over to fornication and gone after strange flesh. The verbs are selected to bring out the intense sinfulness of the sin. The one being a strong compound form expressing unreserved surrender. The other an equally strong compound for denoting a departure from the law of nature in the impurities practice. Right? So clearly, absolute, just out of control, going after that which is not, they, say, they continue to use the word natural, that which goes against what that would be the law. Now, I can, I, can, I can continue to read the commentaries to intensify it. I think we're getting the idea. Now, all we have to do is now go back to Genesis to the story. Now, I've already covered this in my series on sexual violence in the Bible, because, whew. and we reviewed a sermon on the subject that ticked me off, but that's a whole different st- subject, right? Because it was weird the way they approached the text, but okay, let's go to Genesis. We all know where the story is, right? All right. Okay. We have Genesis chapter 19. All right. Um, if, if you remember, the angels uh, show up and they basically, if you, if you look at verse 22, let's see, we go back. Go back to chapter 18. All right. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. All right. We're just going to work through this. I don't want to take too much time, but man, there's just so much to this story that we have to talk about. All right, here we go. Genesis 18, 16. And the man rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abram went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I shall do, which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because, I, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come up to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their face from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew nigh and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? All right. Oh, this is where the story gets, okay. So immediately Abraham is concerned, and, and, and on one hand, you see, I, I kind of, on one hand, I like this, because you see Abraham is worried about people being destroyed, right? He's, he's worried about people being destroyed, but he's worried about what people being destroyed? The righteous, okay, but at least he's showing some concern. And so he's like, 
In a sense, he's in a, in a sense, he's kind of contending with God. Hey, hey, you can't let all the, the righteous be destroyed, right? And he starts this negotiation, basically, right? So he starts off with, hey, if there's 50 within the city, will you destroy them as well? And then, hey, if, if we can find 50, I won't destroy. Remember, and we continue down, right? How far down does it go? Right, if verse uh, 32, and he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak yet, but once preadventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as uh, he had left uh, communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. If you can find ten righteous, I won't destroy the city. All right, that sounds pretty, that sounds like a pretty good odds, right? If you can find ten, if you can find ten. Right? The angels, then we start in chapter 19 where the story just goes from bad to worse. All right, here we go. And there came two angels to Sodom. Now, interesting, we have angels involved, right? Which is kind of interesting because we have angels mentioned in the previous verse. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a very controversial idea out here in a minute that's going to tick off everyone. Listen, we're probably just going to turn off the microphone. Okay, all right. Okay, we're going off the air. This concludes the broadcast day of Victory Baptist Church, okay? Because I already have too many people mad at me, all right? Okay, but just stay with me here. All right, remember, what's the sin Jude points out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Unbridled lust for strange flesh. Everybody got that? Okay. Who comes into the city? Angels. Just keep that in mind. Angels. And there came two angels to Sodom at evening, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your way. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And, the, and he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did break unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house, drowned both old and young, all the people from every quarter. That's a lot of people all gathering around the house. That would be a very disturbing sign. What is happening outside? Everyone's there, old and young. That's, that's, would you everyone agree that this is disturbing? Especially because we know what's about to happen, right? And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in? into thee this night bring them out unto us that we may know them the men of the city are going after angels the strange flesh they're going after are angels is we always refer to the strange flesh as a, the issue of homosexuality. But the issue is they're going after what? Angelic beings. 
When we hear that they're going after that which is unnatural, we immediately apply it to what? Homosexuality. But the story is they're not going after human men. They're going after angelic beings. Now, I'm not saying, now, I'm, I'm already, the emails are getting ready. Just, just everyone calm down. Everyone just take a deep breath. Step away from your phone. Just get away. Just stop. Calm down. Right? I see you. I see you wherever, whatever state. I see you. Just stop. Calm down. I'm saying that we, remember, what's the goal in Bible study? To figure out what's in the text. I, I don't, it's not about having an agenda. See, what I hate so much about Bible study anymore is you've got to figure out what side you want to be on and you've got to interpret it to agree with the side, right? So if I raise an issue about, you know, something about, uh, for example, uh, yesterday, um, after the horrific shootings that occurred in uh, Uvalde, okay, horrible, young children eight, between the ages of eight and ten slaughtered, okay, that was horrible, disturbing, bothered me greatly. It did not take long for certain people to start saying the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. All right? Now, I'm getting ready to offend people in this room, but that's okay. And so my, I just turned on the microphone and go, wait a minute. My podcast is called Theology Central, meaning I look at things from a theological perspective. I don't, I don't, I'm not here to worry about the Constitution, Bill of Rights, or all of the other stuff because I'm a Christian. This is not my home. I'm a pilgrim here. My citizenship is in heaven, right? So I'm like, well, wait a minute. There's a problem with that concept and that Christians shouldn't go around saying it because my Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that doeth good. Who are the good guys with the guns? Because we're all sinners. And I just think depravity and guns is a weird mix. Hey, everyone's, we, we teach total depravity and then we want all the depraved people to have as many guns as they have. It seems that guns and depravity would be just a horrible idea, right? It'd be a horrible idea that if you take depravity and you arm all the depraved people you can, that you're probably going to increase the number of killings and murders because depraved people are armed. Now, some people will say, well, but, but, but depravity means I should own a gun because you are obviously thinking you're less depraved than the other people. And then you look at the statistics of how many people who buy a gun for their own protection who die at the hands of the very gun which they purchased is always insane to look at as well. But I bring that up and everybody loses their minds. I'm like, I'm just, I, don't, I can't pick a side, right? Well, you've got to pick. You're either a liberal or a Democrat. You're a liberal or a Republican. Now, I don't have to play your games. My thing is, wait, what does the theology say, right? So my thing here, what is Jude trying to get across? A lot of people approach Jude, oh, this is a condemnation of homosexuality. Now, I'm not saying homosexuality is not being condemned here. What I'm trying to say is, isn't it interesting that the strange flesh they're going after is what? Angelic, right? It's angels who have taken on the form of a human. So is it possible that the strange flesh there is that these men are attempting to sleep with angelic beings? And isn't it interesting that that is used right after he talks about the angels in the previous verse, which we think may be the sin of angels sleeping with the daughters of men. The the next verse would be the, the sin of the the sons of men 
trying to sleep with the sons of God. Is that possible? It, it really depends on how you interpret the previous verse, right? Because if you go with the previous verse, because how does some translation start uh, the verse about Sodom and Gomorrah? Look at how, how, look at how all the translations uh, uh, start the verse. Go back to Jude. Oh, I know this is going to make me very unpopular online. Okay, look. look uh, the, new, the New International is very interesting. Tell me if this agrees with your copy. All right, you ready? Jude 1.7. Listen carefully. In a similar way, Whoa. In a similar way. Literally drawing a direct correlation to what? The previous verse about angels. Isn't that interesting? The next, and, uh, right, the, e, uh, the, e, uh, the English Standard Version, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, Berean study of Bible, in like manner, so they, the, the, some translations are clearly drawing a correlation that, wait a minute, the angels are mentioned in the verse, and then this verse is about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we immediately go, homosexuality! Homosexuals! They're going to be destroyed! I'm not saying that homosexuality is not an issue. I'm saying that the issue is here, these people had an unbridled lust that they were attempting to sleep with angels. I don't know if they knew that. I don't know if they understood that. I don't think they knew that. But the point, whether they knew it or not, they were, they were going after strange flesh. The strange flesh, I think, is referring to the fact that they were going after angelic beings. Did I just mess up everyone's interpretation all of a sudden? What do you think? Do you think I'm, do you think I'm crazy? I mean, I mean, please tell me. I mean, look, if you don't tell me, people online are going to tell me. Okay, so you, you can go ahead and tell me that. You th I'm giving you the opportunity to go, you're an idiot. Okay, I'm giving you the free opportunity right now to say, you are a complete idiot. What do you think? Okay, Stacy's going with it's both. Right. Well, we, put it this way. It, we, we would clearly know that the fact that the angels took on the appearance of men, that clearly homosexuality was being practiced in common. I'm not, by no means am I, I want to make sure no one thinks that I'm excusing it. Right. 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 That, that clearly they have a desire for it. I'm saying that Jude seems to be focused on the fact they went after strange flesh. And that strange flesh, we know, by going to Genesis, was angelic. And that is perfectly in line with, a pre, it seems to say, the preceding verse. And not only that, the very next verse, look at the very next verse in Jude. It says, heaps abuse upon celestial beings. Am I reading it incorrectly? Or that's the NIV? Well, how does the, I don't have the King James in front of me.
okay. Speak evil of dignities, all right? D despise dominion, okay. And then the very next is Michael the archangel, right? All right, so see, then angels still come into play. So isn't that interesting? This is like angel, angel, angel. Isn't it really weird that this is a lot of angels being brought into this? They blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, that's there's a lot of interesting things. Now, we're going to take that all apart. We're going to take it all apart. I just think that we, that for some reason, preachers just see the opportunity to go, I can condemn some homosexuals today, right? And I'm like, I slow down a little bit here. Um, we have here uh, Twyla. Uh, she's saying that Stacy and her are both right. Okay, I, that, that's probably indication that they're both wrong. Okay, but uh, Twyla says, I think it could be looked at in both ways. Yes, they're going after angels, but the angels were men. And did they know that they were angels or did they think they were just men? Oh, you clearly they thought that they were just men. Let me make it very clear. They have a lot. Remember, go back to Jude. It describes their, the, the sin in a couple of ways. Look, let's look specifically at how the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is described. Remember, we were looking up every word, all the words. Okay, what's the first description? Given themselves over to fornication. And that was, when we looked up fornication, it's the idea of lust, right? Okay, so, they've given themselves over to lust, and clearly, it's not like angels have been visiting Sodom and Gomorrah every day. So we know what kind of lust they've been giving themselves over to. Probably in, probably in many cases, a lot of people will just focus on homosexuality. It appears that the way the word, it's just sexual lust completely of probably all kinds. But clearly homosexuality is involved. And the reason we know homosexuality would be involved is because they see men and they show up. So clearly there's an unbridled lust for homosexual relations or homosexual physical relations in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would everyone agree that that lust is present? But Jude then kind of, in a sense, he acknowledges that, but boom, goes straight to they, were, they went after strange flesh. Right? Now, other translations refer to it as sexual perversion but I think it would be a sexual perversion for humans to be trying to sleep with angelic beings, especially if the previous verse is just condemned that same concept. So I just think that, uh, that sometimes we, uh, we do this a lot. Whenever homosexuality, it's amazing. You can have, you can have a, a couple of verses, it mentions like 30 sins, and homosexuality is mentioned in one. Everybody's like, homosexuality, homosexuality. Like, did you see the sins? Listed above it? Like, because those sins who listed above it sound a lot like you. It's, it's always easy to go after the sin you don't have an issue with, right? Hey, there's a list of 30 sins. Man, that one's really bad. Why? Because I don't do it. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that one. I don't have a problem with that one. I have a problem with all of these. And just make sure you know, unbridled lust can apply to lots of things. Can it apply to sin, to sexual sin? Yes. And everybody always wants to... Lust. Unbridled lust could be just lust for whatever. Lust for approval. Lust for, uh, uh, you know, being recognized. There, there can be an unbridled lust for all kinds of things, right? That can lead to all kinds of different sins. But I just think that the strange flesh here, in its context, first and foremost, has to be applied to the angelic beings, 
Right? Agreed? All right? Oh, we're going to run out of time. Right? Go back to Genesis 19. So the men that are in the Lot's house are angelic. We know that. The text makes it obvious. That's who they want. They're going after strange flesh to commit a perversion. It's unnatural for humans to engage in relations with angelic beings. That's unnatural. Right? I'm not saying homosexuality. I'm not, I'm not going against that in any way, shape, or form. But, but angelic and human are two different things. Everybody agree? Right, so he comes in, um, and Lot went out at the door, uh, out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, "I pray you, brethren, do not do so wickedly." Now we'll stop right here. We got to leave Lot outside with the people. Now here's what I want you. Oh, this story bothers me so. This story is so messed up. Oh man, this story is so messed up. And here's what should. This, I, I, if you, I'm just going to leave with this, even, even though I'm jumping ahead. Remember, if, if, you can, if I can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Clearly, you can't find 10. But what blows my mind of the story is Lot is delivered. Seemingly to imply that Lot is what? Righteous. And in the New Testament, Lot is referred to as righteous. The man who is called righteous in this story offers up his daughters to be raped by all the men of the city. The righteous man sleeps with his daughter daughters not just one time, but two times. You say, but, but they got him drunk. I don't know, maybe when you woke up from your drunken stupor the first time, you would think maybe that wasn't such a good idea. You're telling me he, he had complete amnesia and didn't remember anything? But he gets drunk and sleeps with his daughter, uh, and the other daughter. The righteous man. Every, it's, what blows my mind is everyone just runs around screaming about homosexuality. The righteous man in the story offers his daughters to be raped by a man, uh, the city of the older men of the city and sleeps with his da- both daughters and gets them pregnant. The righteous man in the story. Now, what, what is significant about that? What is the big takeaway from that? That we are righteous not because of our actions. We are righteous by faith. People don't, Christians don't like to hear that, right? Because, because as soon as people are like, come on, just be honest. If you, knew, if you knew a man like Lot, he was sitting right here in the church. Would anybody, I guarantee you, all of you would be talking about that man if you heard what he did? If you saw his daughter sitting next to him and the babies that, that, they, that they gave birth to and you know it came from the ancestral relationship by the man sitting there in the pew because he got drunk with his daughters and had sex, nobody in this church would look at that man and say, that's a righteous man and he's a Christian. You would all like, I doubt his salvation. There's no way he's saved. Right? God declares him to be righteous. 
How is that possible? How is that possible? That goes against every Christian. The modern day Christian would be like, he's lost, he's lost, because there has to be a change. There has to be a change. Well, guess what? I'm glad you're not God. Now, do we excuse what Lot did? Absolutely not. So, but his righteousness is based off faith, not on his actions. Does that make sense? Abraham. I mean, is it, is it really a man thing to do to go, hey, hey, look, we're going to be traveling, you know? Hey, we're going to be, if Emma gets a boyfriend and they're traveling, and like, hey, Emma, we're coming to this city, and oh, man, it's pretty bad. And so if, uh, if we get into some trouble, you're not my girlfriend, you're not anything. Okay, I don't even know who you are. Okay, and then Emma gets taken, and they, he calls to Stephen and Sarah and goes, hey, these guys took Emma. I, I don't know who she is. I mean, I just had to pretend I didn't know who she was. I, I'm sure y'all would be like, man, what a great guy. What a great guy. Hey, Emma, you found a winner. Man, that's, you got the best boyfriend ever. I'm assuming either Sarah, uh, Stephen's pretty calm. Sarah probably wouldn't be. She'd be like, I'm coming to beat you up. Whatever she would do. I'm assuming she wouldn't think he's such a great guy. And I'm like, wait, you're going after the hero of the faith. He's in a Hebrews 11. He's a Hebrews 11 kind of boyfriend. Isn't it, isn't it weird how we treat di- people differently than the Bible treats people? Abraham's like the hero. We're like, he's great because he did one good thing. Isn't it amazing? You do one good thing in the Bible and everybody remembers the good you do. You do something bad now and everybody remembers the bad that you did. Isn't that weird? Now, should we excuse Abraham's actions? No. No one's excusing it, but he's called righteous. Why? By faith. Righteousness was imputed to him. You can be called righteous, and I know you're not. By faith. Lot can be called righteous. Why? By faith. But he's not the righteous man in the story. It just, it just blows my mind that everyone yells about homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, this is what, have you ever heard this? If God does not bring judgment on America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, if he didn't bring judgment on Lot, he deserves, he owes everyone an apology, right? I mean, come on. Because Lot was a train wreck of a human being. No, God doesn't owe anyone an apology because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and judgment on whom he will have judgment. Who, who, how dare you tell me what God is supposed to do? Oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. The, the, there's consequences for his actions. Yeah, the Moabites uh, are cursed people. Yeah, yeah, they're cursed. And the Edomites, yeah. Yeah, all right. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Look how we come before you this morning. Some very interesting developments happening in the text. I pray that we would continue to look at them and set aside all of our presuppositions and try to find out what the truth is and see exactly how this is applicable, not only to the people that was written to, but to us as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...